4: Hello and welcome to the Future of Media Explained with me, press Editor Dominic Ponsford. This week we're going to have a Future of Media Technology conference special. So this week we're having a bit of a special Future of Media Explained podcast off the back of our Future of Media Technology conference. Last Wednesday at the Waldorf Hotel in London which was a very glitzy affair and to help me um, go through some of the big take-homes from the conference I've got most of the Press Gazette team in the studio so I will introduce them we have Bron Mayer who's our reporter hi Bron hi Dom how's it going we've got Will Turville who's our associate editor for investigations and interviews and Will's recently come back to the team from Vancouver where he was our North America correspondent hi Will hello Dom and the regular on the podcast, we have UK editor, Charlotte Tobit. Hi, Charlotte.
5: Hi, Dom. Great to be back.
4: It's great to have you back. Future Media Technology <laughs> Conference, it was a superb day, wasn't it? We had, I reckon, more than 300 of the sort of leading <laughs> figures in UK media in at the Waldorf Hotel and a packed programme of roundtables and keynotes and fireside chats, looking at all the big issues which media leaders need to be bothered about, so look, podcasts, Revenue strategies, leadership, ad tech, data, you name it. So there was a lot in there. And I think even if you were there, even if you were lucky enough to be there, you'd probably be helpful to have some wise minds uh, gather together the the key take-homes from the day. So that's what I thought we'd do. That's why we're all here. So I'm going to start with Bron. What was your highlight of the day? So I think
1: one of the more interesting ones that I tuned in for was when I wasn't doing reporting on the rest of the thing was the cookie apocalypse session, basically taking through what should publishers be doing to get ready for the apparently forthcoming death of third-party cookies. And... The biggest theme I think that came up in it was basically if you're a publisher, you should really get hold of first party data as quickly as you can. We had Joe Holdaway from The Independent talking about that, and obviously the Independent has brought in its registration wall, so you don't have to register, but they would really like you to keep it free. And the Telegraph has been on a really big drive to get people to register as well. And Karen Eccles from The Telegraph was speaking about the value of that and the fact that it gives them a really good value for advertisers because While they're still anonymized users, you can basically say to people, you can target these people very specifically
0: publishers uh,
5: like us who I think we're both using the same technology uh, partner as a data clean room what we love about that is that we are not passing our readers data out anywhere else and we're not asking our clients to do that either so everybody is uh, matching an anonymized version of their data sets so we see the match rates are a sort of proxy of that merged data but nothing is actually being passed and then that results in your you know kind of match which you can then use as it's incredibly um, uh, effective targeting. I mean, it's amazing because you can say to your client, these are your customers, not people who look like your customers or a bit like your customers, but your actual customers. And this is what they're doing. This is when they read. This is what they spend their time on. This is what they care about.
1: And interestingly, Karen also said that more ads are not necessarily better. And they'd done some maths at Telegraph Towers where they learned that actually the more ads you put on the page, at least in their case, are the lower the yields. And on that kind of theme, Marcus Carlson, who's the chief executive of the media business platform of Fino, said that data also had to be relevant and that just hoarding a ton of data isn't necessarily... I'll just go with his story, that a cautionary tale, shall I say, about keeping too much data
6: there's a law in the US, which is copper, which people, you know, like, if I think it's, I can't remember, but at the time, it was $15,000 fine for every underage record you had. And they just had a tiny thing to go wrong. And all of a sudden, they'd have a million children's tracking records. So for them, actually having no data was crucial. And if you operate at that kind of scale, then, then you maybe want to go out of it. And I think the that is the biggest challenge once you get into it, and we can talk about it a bit later, is actually people having too much data.
4: Thanks for that, Bron. The tale of data. People said phrases, didn't they, that is the new oil, wasn't it? That we <clears> need <throat> to have lots of data. But you can have too much data, can't you?
1: Or indeed, the wrong kind of oil slash data.
4: Yeah. <laughs> it's not really like oil, is it? Because I would have thought, more oil, the better, because more oil's really expensive, isn't it? But... Bad data is worse than bad oil. Maybe it's like an oil slick.
1: (laughs) It might well be, Dom. I couldn't possibly comment.
4: So key take-home is look after your data. It's not just a clever thing to say. It's really essential if you're going to serve people relevant advertising, especially in a post-cookie world. Brilliant. Thanks, Bron. Okay, over to you, Will. What was your... Big thing from the conference that our listeners really need to be bothered about?
7: Well, Dom, I've got two, just like Bron. The first one is that the UK media sector is extremely excited about podcasting. Panelists from the BBC, FT, and Evening Standard think we're heading into a golden era of podcasting. And I've prepared a clip of David Marsland, the head of audio at the Evening Standard, talking about how excited he is and expressing thoughts about this being our Sopranos moment for the UK podcasting industry. But what I wanted to say before we play that clip is I think that rather than downing the Kool-Aid of the podcasting excitement, we should tread cautiously. PwC forecasts that podcast advertising revenues are set to grow by th- from £37 million last year to £64 million in 2025, which sounds exciting and that's what people are excited about. But it's worth noting that ad spend across UK national news brands last year was £846 million overall. So while I think we should be excited and there's a lot of opportunity here, I think also we need to bear that in mind. So it's clearly good growth is coming. And in the US, it's also worth noting that a more advanced podcast market there is forecast to reach $2 billion this year. But the UK market still in 2025 is not going to be huge in terms of advertising. Plus, as the excitement suggests, it's also going to be a crowded market at the national level. Here's my clip.
6: I think we're heading into the golden age of podcasting. It's been really exciting the last eight years that I've worked in. And Daniel has seen this too in the innovation and the creativity and the evolution of podcasting as we go in. But now we have... Very, very large amounts of money coming into podcasting. Spotify spent a billion dollars so far on podcasting, wow. envisioning a twenty billion dollar market. So, who's going to fill that bill, that market? What kind of sort of talent are we going to be attracting? What kind of incredible stories are going to be told with these great audiences who want brilliant creativity? I think we're heading into it. I think we're going to get our first Sopranos. I think we're going to get our first Mad Men. (laughs) That's where things are going to be coming into. We've been building up so far. It's like the early days of the movie studios and now people are coming together and they're all merging and now we're going to get something really brilliant coming out. I'm so excited.
4: (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that, Will. There was a lot of excitement about podcasts, wasn't there? And, uh, yeah, it's a shame you had to be such a sort of party pooper about it all. But I do take your point in that it's... Although it's growing fast, it's from quite a smaller level, isn't it? And it's a small piece of the total pie but so we should we need to cling on to these crumbs
7: i'm excited and as a consumer of podcasts i'm excited i think there are some great podcasts out there and there's lots more to come and also subscriptions are becoming a thing in podcasts and that was also another theme from the podcast discussions however the second theme i wanted to highlight was from the panel that i chaired on data journalism and my big takeaway there was that robots are not out to steal our jobs which kind of sounds obvious, I don't know. I think maybe the argument that robots are going to take journalism jobs is a bit 2015, but I still found it quite reassuring to hear evidence from Bloomberg, the BBC, United Robots and CNN that while... AI is becoming a big a bigger part of journalism that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't going to be more journalism jobs as a result of that. So I thought it was fascinating in particular to hear from Claudia Quinones at Bloomberg News who shared some evidence showing that at Bloomberg News they've been introducing automation into the newsroom for around 8 years and her evidence suggests that these AI automation programs are doing the boring bits of the job that journalists used to have to do and the use of them is helping free up journalists to do some proper investigative journalism and analysis so here is what claudia had to say
8: so i do get the question all the time both internally and externally and um, the interesting thing is that it has not materialized So we've been doing this for eight years and it's just not what happens. Like you do not automate people out of their jobs. You actually automate tasks that they hate doing it um, in a very precise way. So for example, everybody wants to arrive a couple of hours earlier to crunch a a number of agendas, to curate which ones will go in which order so you can get a piece at 7 a.m. when your readers want to read it and uh, that the bot can do it super easy, it's ready for you, served on a platter, and you just pull it up. So really at the end, I mean, I I think we're best if we look at technology as our friend, because it can help us do incredible journalism, it can help us find incredible data trends, which I think enables whoever the, the group of journalists that will have sound news judgment uh, and like a, a, a knowledge of which trends are really relevant and we just help them do that faster and better.
4: Thanks for that Will. The sort of tone of that one seemed to be that automation is going to free us up from doing boring jobs but... I didn't really hear much about proper AI in journalism, like intelligent machines that can teach themselves. That that's not really a thing. But by the sounds of things, is it?
7: No. Deepna Devkar from CNN made that point, I think, quite strongly, which is that journalists cannot be replaced by machines. So it was interesting, just the sort of questions that I think it was fun fun to get into that on my on the panel. I think because it's things that we all probably take for granted, but the casual journalist observer might not.
0: From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan, on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale.
2: Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are. That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display.
0: A Year Inside GB News with Stuart McGurk.
9: At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical, and quite, well, obvious.
0: And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
7: Dom, I'd like to flip the question around and ask you what your key take-homes
4: are or takeaways. Okay, well, I'm just going to pick one. Thanks for asking, Will. It was Nick Newman, who's a bit of a regular at these sort of conferences. He's one of the authors of the Reuters Institute Digital News Report, and he gave us a quick 20-minute survey of where the world of news is in 2022 and where things are going. Two big stats stood out for me. He said that in terms of news consumption, there are some fairly well-documented trends, so print going down, online going up. But he said that in the US, 14% of people, according to the survey, don't consume any news at all. In the UK, that's 9%, which is, okay, it's small, but it's growing. And it is worrying, because I think if you look at the sort of people that stand around outside vaccination centres with placards saying coronavirus doesn't exist, I bet they're among that 9%. So they were a bit of a troublesome minority, potentially. And then the, uh, the other thing which he really urged us to be mindful of was the percentage of people who are actively avoiding news. So there was some chat about this afterwards among some of the delegates, and he certainly took the view that the news industry needs to wake up to the fact that people just aren't interested in some of the news that we think they are. I think that's because they perceive publishers as just presenting people with problems and that's quite a turn off. People found it quite stressful and they'd much rather hear a sort of diverse menu of news uh, and maybe some more solutions as well. So I, re- I really took that on board actually. I think that's something people should bear in mind. So here's Nick Newman on news avoidance.
2: So there's another group which is different from those who don't consume any news at all and these are people who do consume news regularly but also selectively avoid it, sometimes or often. And we've been asking about this for a few years, and these numbers have really been growing, particularly in the UK. Uh, Over 4 in 10, 46% now say they actively avoid news or some news at least some of the time, and that's pretty much double the figure in 2017. And if we look at some of the reasons for it, people say that uh, the news... um, makes them depressed has a negative effect on their mood over half of avoiders say that Uh, and then this sort of sense that the news there's too much politics there's too much sort of relentless big stories uh, not enough diversity in the news gender these are some of the sort of key key reasons Um, and just sort of bringing that a little bit to life with a couple of questions from our qualitative work so here's somebody talking about politics making them feel small so no sort of sense of agency that, that whatever I do it won't make any difference and here's a, a young person talking about news make, making them anxious so I think this really raises some, some quite significant issues for for the news industry and thinking about our product. and, and Rachel Kaur uh, talked about this earlier in her keynote um, you know really addressed this issue of, of news avoidance and it's really sparked since our report a very interesting conversation This is Amanda Ripley who who wrote an opinion piece in the Washington Post arguing the need for a radical rethink in the news product to take account much more about how people receive the news how people feel the human dimension the behavioral dimension of this Uh, specifically she argued that journalists need to provide a lot more hope and inspiration alongside uh, the necessary coverage of difficult stories Uh, secondly uh, journalism gives, needs to give people more of a sense of what they can do to make a difference on stories like climate change, for example, rather than just telling us how bad things are. And finally, that sense of, of empathy and dignity when covering difficult stories. Again, Rachel Kaur talked about the value of eyewitness journalism earlier in, 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 in conflicts like Ukraine and the way that, that journalists are able to make that connection on the ground. So some of these issues. And then looking across the industry we see a range of really interesting responses to these issues so a number of for example slow journalism startups we have tortoise media in the uk focusing on explanation and understanding but also on connection often with a membership uh, model where readers are encouraged to take part uh, and make a difference themselves and then secondly you have a sort of idea of solutions journalism or constructive journalism again it's a real con- it's a real uh, growing movement and this is an example of a podcast from the BBC, 39 Ways to Save the Planet, sort of 15-minute nuggets, really, really interesting things that the mainstream media traditionally hasn't covered. And then uh, shifting the agenda is the other thing, from traditional politics to a more diverse set of subjects. The Huffington Post went out and did a big listening exercise, particularly with young people, uh, and came up with a a whole uh, different agenda that they felt would really appeal much better to, to younger people. So these are some of the the things that journalists and journalism organizations are thinking about.
1: I know a reporter around my age who who works for a very major newspaper who, as soon as they get off the -the on-the-clock hours, they do not read the news at all. They're a news reporter all the time when they're on the clock, but then otherwise, nah, it's bad for their mental health.
5: How old are you, Bron, for the listeners?
1: I am 29 years old.
5: Interesting then, because even, if even journalists don't want to read the news, that's worrying.
4: For the record, I do read the news, but I do sympathise, because I sometimes listen to the Today programme, and I just think, you've just given me a load of problems this morning, and that's easy isn't it I think so anyway
5: we have heard more and more about the solutions journalism and making sure that people either feel like something is being done about the problems in the news or that they can do something and making sure you include those solutions within the news stories themselves which is kind of interesting I wonder if we'll start to see more of that sort of thing
7: as an aside I was speaking to some friends this weekend who actually avoid frozen planet 2 despite being really into nature, because they're tired of David Attenborough telling us that the world is going to end. So it's not just a, an issue for general news that, that we're talking about. It's also an issue for documentaries possibly as well. I'm 32, by the way, as are my friends.
4: I think it's something we, we're we mindful of at Press Gazette. I think we do try to give people news they can use, don't we, wherever possible. I think it's harder as well, isn't it? It's, I think it's not as hard to say awful things happened, here it is, but it's quite hard to think of constructive ways of reporting that and to dig a bit deeper and try and come up with some sort of strategies and answers. And finally, Charlotte, what were your big take aims?
5: So I've got two for you. One is the sort of serious one and one is a fun one to end on, I hope. So firstly, a couple of panels touched in on the status of the relationship between publishers and tech giants, which obviously is a recurring theme at this sort of event but my takeaway which is a bit different from I've heard before would be that a few publishers said that yes we have to work with the platforms you can't ignore them nowadays everyone has to work with them to some extent they bring us so much but these publishers have come to realize that a constructive relationship and having like partner-like conversations are more fruitful for getting the ecosystem to work well for publishers than having a very adversarial relationship which I know lots of the stories we've written in the past would very much suggest that's how it's been but also in her keynote a new ITN CEO Rachel Corp warned that the sustainability of journalism is as fragile as ever in part because this hasn't happened the full impact it needs yet. So I think that's just something to be aware of, that ha- what are the most constructive conversations we can have with the platforms rather than just shouting at them. So I've got a clip here. It starts with Gabe Gonder from the Clover Mail in Canada, and he's VP of its AI solutions, sophie.io. And then um, it moves on to News UK COO David Dinsmore, um, and they both have some interesting takes on this relationship.
3: The globe is not looking to sort of sit alongside other, um, companies or, or other industries like broadcast, um, you know, to deal with either the platforms or government. Um, I think we're sort of, um, constitutionally wary of both government and, um, and 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 we've sought to make our own deals but i think it's really important to make a distinction between platforms because they have different business models they have dis- different characteristics and they can benefit publishers in different ways i mean facebook only only drives 5% of its uh, of its audience through news right and so they're just not mu- much of a um, a factor there. Although it's interesting, like they do a bit in Canada in investing in in news news deserts, and they've put a bit of money toward things like that, um, which is encouraging. Um, but that's just not their focus. We see a great opportunity, and when we've we've negotiated deals on this basis with both Google and Apple. To, to, to find bigger undifferentiated audiences. And I mean, unlike the, the other folks on the panel, we're, we're, we're relatively small. We have 10 million you know, uniques uh, or somewhere thereabouts. It's not the hundreds that, that you're hearing about from Forbes and, and news and, and football. Um, and so for us, that kind of reach can really matter.
7: But our,
2: look, our aim has always to be, has always been to get fair value for, for content uh, and to, uh, to level the, the playing field as, as best we can. The great thing about these deals is that yes, there is uh, there is a check, but there is also, uh, as Gabe was alluding to, uh, getting the ecosystem to work better for uh, for journalism, frankly, uh, and for our, our business models. So that's actually having a proper partnership where you're able to have a partner like conversation, mm-hmm. rather than an adversarial one, is is a real benefit. So, uh, so we are. it's by no means solved the issue, uh, but we've made a great start on that.
4: Thanks for that, Charlotte. A bit of an about turn for us. We've been shouting at the uh, jaw police for ages. Good to hear other points of view as well. And at the end of the day, they don't care. Anyway, do what we say. They're just crack on making billions. When they... It's
5: not going to change anything.
4: <laughs> Brilliant. Well, let's hear your, your final lighter note to finish on.
5: So at the conference, the way that we got everyone to wake up after lunch was with Ellis Watson, who was formerly a CEO and chairman of DC Thompson, among many other media brands. And his keynote speech was entitled, and I'm not going to swear, I don't know what rating we have, but cheer the F up. He didn't censor himself throughout but the reason I wanted to mention a couple of the things he said were he's basically said things aren't so bad there's loads of exciting stuff going on the digital revolution has meant that there's so many things we can do as long as you're taking some risks and you're allowed to take risks by your shareholders there's so much you can do it's a really exciting time and then the the two sort of main things from that I took were a um, make sure you're having a laugh have fun at work that's how you're going to get loads of great stuff out of it both on a personal level and on a business level and b Be brave, again, both in your business model and personally. And those two things together, he says, will make all the difference. And I've got a clip from Ellis here.
9: We can probably accept that the digital revolution has finished threatening media models and now should just excite them. And people shouldn't wait and listen to luminaries talk about what is the future of news media or what is the future of paid media, because the future of it, without wishing to sound like some sort of a contrived motivator, is genuinely in the room. There is something about running or being part of media ownership, providing your shareholders aren't idiots and they liberate you and choose to really back you to be renegades and dangerous and to to take decent risks, that should make this a really exciting and emerging time for media, And again, I'm not trying to just, under Domino's instruction, go, come on, everybody, things are great, cheer the fuck up. But, come on, everybody, things are great, cheer the fuck up. It's a really, really exciting, dynamic time. And I think that, providing that you don't get threatened by the dominance of the platforms that are just pervading opinions of shit and you create or curate, at the very least, decent quality content and package it and market it in a way that people want. It is a genuinely, phenomenally exciting time.
4: Thanks, Charlotte. Wise words from Ellis. I think journalism in the media is a bit... If you're not, in, not enjoying it, then you might as well go and work in banking or something. What's into, the point? Yeah, exactly, what's the point? OK, that's the, that concludes our bit... Our bit key take-homes from the conference i feel that any listeners who didn't get to go along to the waldorf certainly got a flavor of some of the key learnings from the day and hopefully we're tempted to come along next year so you've been listening to the future of media explained with me press editor dominic ponsford bron mayer will turville and charlotte tobia it has been expertly produced as always by adrian bradley please subscribe to us and like us wherever you get your podcasts and of course check out pressgazette.co.uk for more news and analysis on all the issues which we discussed today